Hi everybody, welcome to Wrong Term Memory, it's me Jack And it's me Colin, and once again, we're not alone, we've got a guest Jack, who have we got with us this week? Yeah, back uh, by popular demand, well at least one person said he knows what he's talking about So um, <laughs> we've got Hugh back on, who was last on when we spoke about Parasite And we're going to do another movie review and we're going to lean um, on Hugh for his expertise, let's see How are you Hugh? I'm very good, lads. Thanks very much for having me back on. It's nice to hear that one person wanted me back on. That's, that's more than normal, to be honest. Nah. That's a win. No, a few people um, a few people said <laughs> that who knows his potatoes, so uh, we decided to reach out. And we're, as always, we've got our finger on the pulse of what's going on with the youth today, and we're uh, reviewing a film that is 24 years old now, 22 years old, something like that. But... Um, I put my foot down and decided that I was going to pick the film because this is one of my favourite films, so I won't hear a bad word against it, guys. And it is Snatch. So I've laid my soul out there and told you how much I love this film. We'll pop over to you first, Colin. Right at the start, what were your thoughts on Snatch? Um, so there was a bit, of a, a bit of a debate around this film and whether I'd seen it or not. And um, we, after a lot of soul-searching, I realised that it was actually Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels that I'd not seen, and I did see Snatch, and um, I enjoyed it, it was good, um, but I guess the fact that I couldn't remember instantly if I'd seen it or not means I don't love it, um, I don't I, sorry, I don't have the sort of, the love for it that you've got, but it, it was very enjoyable, I think if I'd seen it when it first came out, I'd probably have loved it a lot more than I did, because I think I watched it when I was about 34, 35 or something like that, Um probably it would appeal to me more at the kind of age where you watched it and stuff like that. But it's a good film. Um it's got good lines. It's quite clever at times and it's it's doing something a little bit different in terms of you, you couldn't say that the guys in it are too typecast. You've got people coming in and playing really strange characters and stuff you wouldn't expect to see them doing normally. So for me, I enjoyed it. It was good and I was glad to watch it again last weekend for this. Yeah, like you mentioned there, Colin, I, I first watched it when it came out, so I'd have been about seventeen or eighteen at the time, very much and I'll be honest, smoking a lot of the wacky wacky, and it was probably sort of in the DVD player, sort of on repeat for a couple of years. It was a film I always went back to. Hugh, what about yourself? Um, again, cards on the table. What did you think rewatching Snatch? Because I don't think you had seen it for quite a while. Yeah, it'd been a long time since I seen it. I went to the cinema when it came out originally. I do remember going to see it, and I remember at the time thinking that it was really good, but. I just never went back to it, you know. So um, it was really nice when I got the opportunity to to, to revisit it for the podcast. So um, I, I try to think of the best way to, to say this. It's like, Colin, what you said about having not seen Lockstock, it's like, I would say you have. If you've seen Snatch, you've seen Lockstock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. There, 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 there's kind of much of a piece. And I, I don't mean that disparagingly because I think they're both really good films in such an easy 90 minutes. Do you know what I mean? It just, just flies by. It's so much fun. Um, so whilst I can't get on board with the uh, with the Oscars shout you were you were suggesting earlier, Jack, um, I can get on board with it being a tremendous amount of fun. In fact, one of one of the notes I made at the vet, like about maybe halfway through was this is a lot of fun as well as being a tremendous load of shite. But you know the the enjoyable load of shite that you want, you know. Um, and it's kind of like, it came just at that right point as well, just at the end of the sort of the 90s. And it's still got the sort of the lingering after effects of the sort of cool Britannia. You know, every film critic worth their salt in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s was trying to sort of rebrand Guy Ritchie as, a, as like a British Tarantino. And I, I don't think that quite stacks up, but there are some interesting comparisons there. I think I think that's fair. Um and yeah, I think like uh, Richie's got such a, an interesting style, and like it, it really, what he did in in Lockstock, he just kind of ramped up to twelve, I think, with uh, with this film. Um, so yeah, it was re- a lot of fun to go back to, but it's not without its issues. So while we're while we're on Guy Ritchie, before we get into Snatch, then Guy Ritchie has obviously um, he's been making films for quite quite a long time now. You know, mm. that's nearly I would say pushing thirty years, maybe twenty five, twenty six years he's been making films for. I recently watched The Gentleman, which is on Netflix, which again is a gangster garb. You know, it's I, I think I've just got a real soft spot for gangster films because I really enjoyed mm-hmm. The Gentleman very quickly. Either you seen The Gentleman on Netflix and did you enjoy yes. it? Or did you? Yeah, you did the you? Gentleman yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, right. and again, without without derailing the conversation too much, that for me felt like a proper return to form. You know, there's a guy yeah. going back to the roots of what he, what he knows, and it really just like he made this sparkling little gangster film that's full of all these hyper stylized moments. Yeah, no, I was delighted to see him go back to that. 
Colin? Um, yeah, I watched it. I saw I saw the gentleman in the cinema. Right. And thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, there were some great performances in there, none less than Hugh Grant's. Um, Hugh Grant in particular was Brilliant. fantastic <laughs> in that film. The best I've ever seen him. Um, just given the most un-Hugh Grant performance you're ever going to see. <laughs> and it looks like he's, he's doing it again. I think Guy Ritchie's got a new film coming out called The Covenant. And it looks like Hugh Grant's got a similar sort of role in that as well. Um, and the other thing that he's doing as well, which I find quite interesting, is he signed up to do the live Disney reenactment of Hercules as well as, as a mm, film that he's going to be right. doing quite soon as well. Um, the, the Disney live reenactments have pretty much been done for money so far and they've, well, they've successfully done quite well in that regard, but they've not been very good to watch. Yeah, what no, he I, I does, agree with that. Yeah, yeah the, 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 the Disney will see them as a massive success because they've been made, they've, been, they've, they've earned a fortune for them, but they've not been particularly good. I think the guy, the idea of Guy Ritchie in a Disney adaptation is quite exciting in some ways. It'll be good well, to see how far he pushes that envelope. This is the second stab at it, though, isn't it? Because he did uh, he did Aladdin as well. Um, yes. And it's it, when I was, I remember watching Aladdin, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realised it was Guy Ritchie because none of his visual style is on that film at all. No. He's, it just feels like he's a proper director for hire, come in to do a job, and he, and he does it quite well. I think the I think the live action Aladdin is fine, but utterly like you know pointless. You know, it's a fine film, but you know, no serves no purpose. Just watch the original. Um, I mean, Guy Ritchie's back catalogue is just insane. Like when you go through some of the films that he's made, again, like from those early films about Lockstock and Snatch and Revolver and, and like the Sherlock Holmes movies, which are a lot of fun as well. But yes. he's got some amount of shite in there—just <laughs> a run of absolute dross, where like swept away and King Arthur and oh, what was that? Oh, the, K- the Jason King Stephen Arthur. One um, I was dog shit. Just... Don't... <laughs> that was garbage, man. I didn't watch it all. I very, Absolutely. yeah, I, I turned it off. I didn't watch. I didn't go all the way through it. Charlie Hoffman is that how yeah. you pronounce your second name? Just everything about it was garbage. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he worked with um, guy that actually worked with a producer um, called Matthew Vaughn, who sort of worked with him in Lockstock, Snatch, Mean Machine. So you can see where he's heading at. And then I think <laughs> the last time he worked with guy that actually wasn't swept away and he went now. I think I'm going to go and do my own thing. And then he's worked in really big films like Kick-Ass, X-Men, Kick-Ass 2, mm-hmm. Fantastic Four. So he's went on to big things as well. So, um, But his movie theatre sort of in producing kick-started by Guy Ritchie. The film made in a £10 million budget after Lockstock was made, I think, on £800,000. So a turbocharged box, uh, Lockstock basically getting £30 million it made in America. And about ninety million worldwide, I think. Um, now this was—I don't know how. I don't know if interesting is the right word here, but on Rotten Tomatoes, which is one of the big movie review websites, I'm sure you all know about that. The the critics kind of didn't like this, but I always go with audience score, and the audience score was ninety three percent. Do you think there's a reason that the critics panned it, Hugh? Is it because it's so British? A lot of this sort of panning came from. American critics like, like the New York Times and stuff like that were absolutely down in this film. Is it just the whole yeah. Britishness of it that they don't understand, they don't like? I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. I, mean, I, I wouldn't say don't like, but I, I do think there's a language barrier issue. I know it sounds really stupid, but the, uh-huh. the Cockney geezer-ness of, of both those films, I think, is a barrier for some people. Um, and obviously in this film, you're introducing <laughs> the pikey language, as they call it in the film, which <laughs> is, you know, you know, borderline cartoonish. You, you know, it's almost impenetrable. So I, I think that's an issue. But if I'm honest with you, I, I do think there are things... There are things in the film that that don't quite work, and I don't think a lot of the criticism's unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, my my biggest takeaway from it this time, my biggest issue with it is like, you know, we we're talking about the dialogue earlier. The dialogue is really great, isn't it? Sparkling, it's really funny, uh, eminently quotable. Um, like cousin Avi when he shows up in uh, Mike Reed's office and says, no, "Shut up and sit down, you big bald fuck." That has lived <laughs> in my head for years, and I didn't know where it had come from. Couldn't remember what film it was from then when I was watching the other night. I had a proper chuckle. Anyway, but is it just me or does it feel like the the dialogue is written in such a way that almost any of the the lines could be exchanged with any other character? All the characters feel very much of a piece. You're either the the sarcastic Cockney geezer, the scary Cockney geezer, or the (laughs) dumbass Cockney geezer. And it's like the lines all just kind of rotate around that. And again, that inherently is not a problem, but it does it does mean you don't buy into the characters as much. But you can enjoy the ride of the film, you can enjoy the the madness and in, in, in the well crafted dialogue. But I just don't feel that it's particularly, with the exception of Brad Pitt, 
I don't think anything's particularly tailored to certain characters. Right, okay, what about yourself, Colin? You mentioned Brad Pitt. We may as well start with Brad Pitt. Like I say, the budget was £10 million, so I'd imagine that um, there's maybe a small fact about where 10% of the budget went, but we'll get to that later <laughs> on, perhaps. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. The Brad Pitt, uh, one of my favourite roles, one of my favourite Brad Pitt roles. What did you think of Brad in this as Mikey? What's his second name? I've got it in front of me somewhere. Doesn't matter, Mikey. Mikey, <laughs> Mikey. the, the gypsy um, or traveller. Mikey on Mikey O'Neill, funnily yeah, enough. Um, yeah. I thought he did, I thought he was really good in this. I think there's a kind of interesting backstory as to how it came about. He watched Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and really, really enjoyed it. And he got in touch with uh, Guy Ritchie and just said, um, I need you to make a film and I need to be in it. I need to be in your next <laughs> movie. Uh, Guy Ritchie at the time didn't have a next movie planned after, off the back of this conversation yet. Um, he then started working on Snatch and he got in touch with Brad Pitt and said, I'm really, really sorry, but there's just not a role in this film for you. It just wouldn't work. And Brad Pitt was like, well, let me audition and I'll show you it working. <laughs> and basically, I said, this is what you got out of it. Um, Brad, Pitt's, Brad Pitt probably doesn't get the... Brad Pitt's one of these guys that's just too... He's too beautiful. He's too good looking, right? And that probably stops him getting the credit that his act, actual acting ability probably deserves. He's done some cracking work. He's done in some great films. Even just a couple of months ago, I saw him in a film, uh, Bullet Train, and he was incredible in that film. It was such a fun popcorn 90 minutes. It was great. In this film, I think he does a great job of playing what the what the film will describe as a pikey. Um, you would 100% believe that he is of that ilk, and he's not acting. He just fits in perfectly at it. The voice, I think, is actually quite good. The look, the terrible facial hair, the haircut, it, it just works, and it takes more than just a pretty face to kind of pull off that role when you're Brad Pitt playing a pikey Mickey O'Neill and he does it and I think he's brilliant in the film. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure the film gets anything close to $30 million in America without Brad Pitt being in it. Um, but it's, it's it's not the Brad Pitt show. There's a lot there's a lot of good characters in it. There's a lot to it. But I think Brad Pitt does a lot of heavy lifting in the film. Yeah, you speak about, you were speaking about the, the sort of um, Cockney geezer stuff, Hugh, and how it's pretty overwhelming. There is pretty... There's pointed stuff in it to an American audience, and obviously Brad Pitt's one of them, cousin, cousin Avi. And then there is things, they speak about things like social security numbers, which obviously we don't have here. And so there is some, he knows that he needs to go big, guy that she's here and get a, get a superstar, and it just what happens that that guy's mm-hmm. Brad Pitt. He didn't wash on set, from what I heard. Um, he, he was <laughs> actually dirty. Um, to try to sort of stay in character and supposedly based his accent off of uh, a character in Father Ted. Now, these facts have come from IMDb and we'd Sean Williamson on ages ago and I was speaking to him about future projects and stuff like that. I mentioned IMDb and he said, look, a lot of it's just completely made up and stuff on there. So whether or not um, any of that Brad trivia is actually 100% true, I'm not. I'm not sure. Anyway, right, we'll, try, we'll get into the film. We'll get into the film, Hugh. Um, starts with a, a daring jewelry theft, basically, with Frankie Four Fingers. May as well just stop right there. What did you think of Frankie Four, Four Fingers and Benicio Del, Del Toro in this? I mean, it, it's, it, he is the tip of the iceberg for the film because it's like, mm-hmm. just you forget how many stars there are in it, either like current or future at the time. Uh, oh. I mean, you, just, you look down the list, you know, you've got him, and then obviously this is one of Jason Statham's big calling cards. You've got uh, Brad Pitt, Stephen Graham, uh, Ewan Bremner shows up for a brief scene. You've got Jason Fleming, uh, Lenny James as well shows up. I, I I couldn't believe the amount of stars in it. And again, I, I suppose having not seen it for so long, you kinda, you forget that aspect of it, you know, that he was a director that so many people wanted to work with. And he very obviously had an eye for talent. And he spotted quite a lot of uh, young uh, British talent coming through the ranks. So yeah, this opening's a lot of fun. Uh, Benicio del Toro, um, he, he's, he always pops up in the oddest of places, doesn't he? It's yeah. like he's just he's he's as, as at home in a sort of indie drama as he is in a Star Wars movie, or as it turns out, a British gangster flick. You know, who who would have thought it? <laughs> um, but it's an almost blink and you'll miss him role because he he doesn't really have much to do. I, I love that opening scene though, where the, the credits are coming up and we're kind of we're watching them going into the bank through the uh, the bank of monitors. You know, it's I think what that's so me. clever. Yeah, it's and, and, really what me. 
and and I, I'll be honest with you, I totally missed this the first time. But like, if you listen to what they're talking about, they're talking, they're, they're doing a sort of a deconstruction of the of the Virgin Mary, uh-huh. which is obviously like an homage to Tarantino's uh, Reservoir Dogs diner scene, where they're all talking about um, Madonna's Like a Virgin, which totally flew past me the first time I saw this. But this thing, I, I properly, it cracked me up. I thought it was really good. No, the, the like I said, the, the, right from the start, it hooked me in because. It's it goes hyper stylized really fast this film, mm-hmm. and I just think and I was in a mindset where that's the type of shit I liked when I was eighteen. It goes hyper stylized really fast. It gets to the point. There's a diamond stole calling, so that means we can then get introduced to Doug the Head um, and Cousin Avi. The way that Cousin Avi gets on the plane and arrives in London within about what seems. 30 seconds, that, yes. I mean, <laughs> but that, never mind that as a as a plot hole, we don't particularly want to drill down into that. What are your thoughts on these two guys then, right at the start, Colin? Um, so, I'll, I will watch Mike Reed and anything, and anything um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Frank Butcher, I always, always <laughs> loved Frank Butcher and EastEnders, um, my mum and dad are called Pat and Frank. <laughs> family joke that one um but he's he's always great when he pops up in these things he's he's great when he pops up in any sort of hard man role or kind of wheeler dealer dodgy guy type thing he's just got one of the faces one of the voices that fits into this sort of thing um he's, he's not just a naked man on peggy mitchell's doorstep with a spinning bow tie you know he's got a lot more to him and i like him in this um i like the way he, I just the way he delivers his lines and stuff. I think he's. It's obviously a very. It's a very exaggerated, stupid character, and it's there's a lot kind of it lends itself to a lot of things. But you do kind of believe it a little bit with him. You could see him being that guy, and again, I think that just comes down to Mike Reed and how good he is at doing this sort of thing. So, Mike Reed and his character um, Doug was the one that kind of resonated the most with me. That's the one I probably enjoyed the most in the whole film. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. The the way that Guy Ritchie just very rapidly, quickly, stylized fashion just introduces you to tons of characters all at once at the beginning. So you're very quickly introduced to these characters. You've got Turkish, which is obviously Jason Statham, who's a like a, a boxing promoter basically. Um, his wee friend, um, Stephen Graham, who is probably one of Britain's greatest character actors now. We've got to give him a lot of kudos for where he's come. Um, his, his accent's really good in this, actually, considering he's a scouser, to be fair. Mm-hmm. So you're introduced to all these guys. You're, you're, you're Again, the, this sort of pandemonium at the beginning, Hugh, with lots going on, is that a, a Guy Ritchie thing? Is it just is it a British gangster movie thing? Because I've seen it a lot with the, the interlinking stories, you know, there's lots of yeah. different... There's, well, there's actually only two storylines in this, but there seems to be lots and lots going on. And we see. I think it's. I think you you think that because Guy Ritchie's probably the guy who introduced that sort of visual style to, to a lot mm. of British uh, gangster films that would come later, um, and it stuck around. I mean, here we are sitting in uh, twenty twenty three, and it's still there. I mean, you still see these films being made. You know, and oh. it's like it, it shows you how influential he has been as a director on a lot of like young directors coming up uh, behind him. But yeah, what you guys were saying about the way that the characters are introduced and, you know, the, the way that Cousin Abby suddenly arrives from the States and, you know, they're all sort of like big bombastic characters. You're spot on. But again, I, I like that because it sets the tone right from the office. Like, you know where you are. You know, this is the kind of film you're in for. These are all like, almost like caricatures of, of, other, of real people, you know. And so things like plot holes don't exist in this world because it doesn't matter. It's like, that's not why we're here we're going to be told a fun, engaging story and we're going to trust the director and the style that he's choosing to implement to kind of get you through this story and pull you through it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. In another film, him arriving 30 seconds later would be frustrating. But in this film, they set the, the, the example from the off and you're like, yeah, this is great. This is brilliant. It's, so, it's such a stupid fun uh, turn. I liked it. Yeah, we're introduced again pretty quickly to... Um, well, we, I'm just going to call them Peggy's because that's what they're called in the film, right? Um, that's yes, probably oh, not, right, that's, that's right. probably not the correct term, but um, no, that's the term we're using, the, we're using the language of the film. That's we're what using we're the doing. language it's of not, the film. It's not our own opinion on what they should. I be don't called. get me. Don't get me cancelled, Alan. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah so Turkish. Really. Well, yeah, that's it. So Turkey, Turkey, <laughs> Turkish sends Tommy to um, the 
the, the package to get a caravan, basically, and that's when we first sort of introduced to Brad and his merry band of men, basically. For some reason, uh, Gorgeous George ends up fighting the guy, um, Brad Pitt, basically, who we don't know at this point is a bare knuckle boxing champion. This is probably my, for some reason, one of my favourite scenes ever in a film, and I think it's just because of the... I'm not a particularly a Stranglers fan. I'm not a Stranglers fan at all, actually, but the the way he gets knocked out, the, the Golden Brown comes on, just everything about it, I thought was... I still do enjoy it. I still... It, it's... It sealed so much into my brain that I still actually get a wee a wee shiver when it happens. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Colin? The, that sort of scene debate set up and the sort of jeopardy that Gorgeous George and wee Tommy finds himself in because he's absolutely shitting himself that he's going to get murdered. Yeah, well, rightly so. <laughs> I, I would have turned and rocked away the second I out at that place. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you're, you're right to call out the music. And it's it's amazing because if you think about it, two guys go to buy a caravan, they end up in a fight and it's a bit scary. It's not the most of, it's not the most exciting or groundbreaking or new cinema, but if you add the right song choice, which is usually yeah. an unexpected song choice, and you've got a bit of style in the sort of cinematography, which Guy Ritchie clearly does, you transform a kind of by-the-by a to B sort of plotline in a film to something that's now burnt into your brain forever, and that's that's where Guy Ritchie I think comes into his own at times the the ability to think of a song, think of a think of something that makes the kind of a, a mundane scene or a standard scene just jump off the page or jump out the screen for me, and that's exactly what you do with a song like that. I can't think of another film that's got Golden Brown in it with the Stranglers. Um, I can't think of it using a I certainly can't think of it using a sort of fight scene. It's, um, it's but it very works. similar to uh, the scene in Lair Cake in the cafe where the guy, um, the big black fella, absolutely he pours the boy in the water and stuff like all of the guy. And there's a, there's a, the soundtrack to that's absolutely perfect as well. But we're not speaking about that film. Hugh, we're introduced eventually to Bricktop, right? So there's all these cavalcade of characters in this movie. And I spoke about this before. In movies, you've got to sort of Characters have got to have some redeeming qualities. You've you've got to like like Turkish because he's quite he's quite funny. You've got to like uh, the Pikes because they're amusing and like they've got their own thing. Bricktop, however, ha, does he have any redeeming qualities? He's obviously the the complete baddie in this film, and you can tell straight away he's really sinister. Mm-hmm. Right, Alan Ford is, is fantastic in this role. He is just, he is the most evil bastard who ever bastarded. You know, he's mm-hmm. just everything about him. He looks just so menacing. He's he's not, I mean, he's a, such a slight person as well. You know, he's, he's so small and, and wiry, but there's all this sort of bristling hate and anger all just constantly spilling out of him. I mean, like throughout the whole film, he gets some great moments and it's like, he gets a lot of good lines, he even gets like an evil monologue, you know, when he's talking about what he does at his pig farm. And, yeah. and again, he's, you can almost imagine him being a sort of low-rent Bond villain, you know, he's, he's that he's that interesting a character, I think he's brilliant. Um, and again, he kind of like, he just dials everything up to 12, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's an insane performance and I would love to have been in the room, you know, when, when there was th- those conversations being had about how they were going to put Bricktop together and what he was going to be. Because I mean, from what I understand in real life, Alan Ford is, by anyone who works with him, who I've read interviews with him, he's a lovely man. And yeah. people can't speak highly enough about him. I think he's, he's like a an vegetarian? animal rights activist. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. He's, but that's what I mean. Like, he's apparently such a lovely... It, it reminds me of um, Peter Capaldi. Whenever you see Peter Capaldi interviewed, he comes across as the, the nicest man who ever lived, but yet his turn in, you know, as Malcolm Tucker, he's just this menacing, boiling pot of rage. And it's, I love it when actors can kind of tap into that side of them. Um, do you ever see... Um, do you guys ever watch Alan Partridge? Yes, he was the boxing promoter, wasn't he? (laughs) Exactly, but he's just the same character. It's fantastic. Um, 
Yeah, I went back. I was watching my way through Alan Partridge about a year ago. I was kind of binging the whole thing from the start, and I totally forgot he was in it early on. It made me properly chuckle. But yeah, again, it's just the same character. But you know, Brick Top's brilliant in this film, isn't he? And um, obviously, there's a lot of rumours about who was and wasn't offered the role beforehand. But I'll, I'll let you talk about that, Jack. Because I saw some of that in your notes. <laughs> well, well, that is it. Now, now you said that he's the same character as he is in Alan Partridge. Now I don't know if Guy Ritchie is an Alan Partridge fan, and maybe seen him on that. Now, yeah, again, this, yeah. is, this is from IMDb, right? So, again, the veracity of these claims, I'm not 100% sure about. But supposedly, Bradley Walsh uh, told The Telegraph that he was actually cast as Bricktop, but Guy Ritchie found out that he presented Wheel of Fortune in 1988 and decided to <laughs> sack him there. And then, again, don't know about that. There's another one there, Colin. Um, one of Scotland's own was supposedly offered the part as well. Yeah, so if it's funny that I saw you put that in the notes, I watched a couple of bits on YouTube about the film today, and this came up on that. Right. Um, Sean Connery um, was uh, originally uh, kind of scoped to be uh, to play that role, and uh, they put together actually a showing, a screening of Lockstock for him, I think it was, uh, to let him kind of see what Guy Ritchie was all about and everything to do with it. And the, st- the story goes that Sean Connery sat watching it, and um, midway through the movie, he leans over and says. You're a very, very, very good film creator. You're a really good director, but you will not be able to afford me. <laughs> and that was the end of the idea of Sean Connery being in it. And you know what? As as fun as it would have been with Sean Connery, um, I th- I just can't imagine it not being Alan Ford now. It it just works and it's right. And there's another little nice wee tip bit about Alan Ford in this film as well. And that the the glasses that are kind of synonymous with him in this performance, they weren't. They were they were not the plan. Uh, he actually turned up on the first day of filming and forgot his contact lenses, right? Um, and he couldn't see. And they gave him these glasses to wear, and they became as soon as they put them on, it was like, oh my god, did they, they, they? That's the outfit, and they became yeah, a staple yeah. part of the kind of look. But originally, it was just an absolute mishap because he'd forgotten his contact lenses, which I think I love things like that. It's really cool. Would you, Would you not love to? Would you not love to know though? Like, did did they go from? Did they go from Sean Connery and like, oh, he said no. Get Bradley Walsh on the phone. Come on, he'll, he'll do it for us. Like, where did that, where'd that conversation come from? I'd, lo- I'd just love to know. I'd love to be in the room as well when poor Bradley got the phone call to say it was his stint on Wheel of Fortune that done him out the role. <laughs> bastards. Utter bastards. Yeah, in the late 80s. The, on a DVD commentary, so I suppose this, this is true. Guy actually mentions that um, he met a Brazilian guy one day and he said, the lowest of the low. Um, in Brazil are those that abuse animals and which is true you know that that is really really low and that's kind of why they decided to make Bricktop poke the dogs in the cages as if dog fighting is not bad enough um, <laughs> but they made sure that he poked them with a stick yeah do you know why he's called Bricktop or why do, why we think he's called Bricktop it's in the notes I don't know but I've read the notes so I kind of do know but I don't want to be well actually you know what Jack I do uh, <laughs> um, I, actually you know what I will do it yeah Jack actually what actually happened was British slang Bricktop actually means being, being ginger or having red hair so the assumption is that uh, Bricktop had ginger hair in his you. yeah that is it one character <laughs> that we, we've not mentioned who has been in the film the guy that Tommy gets sent to buy the gun off uh, Boris uh, the Blade, basically. So the joke is that this guy's impossible to kill, basically. That and the way he does get murdered is again one of my favourite scenes. But we will get there with with Vinnie Jones, <laughs> Frankie Fourfingers, a degenerate gambler, Colin. So he, he's going to go to this bookies to rob it. Boris knows this, so he hires the the comedy duo. Now you've not seen Lockstock. There's two Scousers in Lockstock and basically Vinny and Saul are the Scousers but in Snatch basically. The, the comedy uh, duo or trio because Big Tyrone is there. Again, thoughts on <laughs> on these guys. Uh, I love him. I love Tyrone. He's hopeless but he's a big lovable filler because he's got confidence in his own ability even though he can't back that up. <laughs> yeah, these, these two are probably more... For, for comedic value than anything else is it Vinny and Saul I think are there, is the two characters yeah, James right. isn't it and you just know from the minute they come on the screen you know this isn't going to go to plan this isn't going to work and it doesn't make an absolute <laughs> no. arse of it 
Um, they crash the car into Frankie's van. Frankie's trapped inside. They're caught in camera, and then beyond end of the whole thing, there's not even any money in the bookies in the first place. Um, <laughs> the, the way so, the woman handles them in the bookies is is brilliant. I'm not going to do the accents, <laughs> but the way she just dismisses them like there's no fucking cash here, guys. You're, you're a complete waste of time, and then traps the guy in the with the you call it the security shield thing that goes up very, very yeah, yeah. Good. but these guys are useless I think again sorry for sort of jumping in but it's okay I, basically they are all the things that happened to them are based from sort of films of the past like caper films basically where people get things wrong and that's exactly what happens with, with, with them completely what were you saying there Colin sorry before I jumped in no, that that, that was the, I was actually I was actually really hopeful you were going to do the accent because our, our listeners do enjoy you doing accent, Jack. No, actually, never. Um, but um, no, that that was the main <laughs> the main thing for me was just watching this. It's almost a slapstick scene in some ways in the way that it just goes so wrong so quickly for these two goons, basically. Uh, and they make an oh, arse of it. Lovable um, goons. You kind of like you like them. Yeah, you, you don't hate them. They're, they're yeah. not nasty or despicable or anything like that. They're just dafties. And you know what? Who who, who doesn't love a dafty? <laughs> so those two guys, let's say, um, they they're hired by Boris to to do all that sort of stuff. They come out of the bookies and eventually kidnap Frankie Hugh. So put the sack over his head, and then Boris comes comes along and murders him basically because he knows who he is. Body disposal, right? I don't. This isn't in the notes, but the way that bodies are disposed of just generally in films. What are your thoughts here? Because obviously you've got Bricktop who feeds into the pigs and then Boris just starts chopping people up. Does that happen in real life? It seems to be a trope in films that that's just how you dispose of bodies. you just got a big plastic bag chopping them up. Easy peasy. Never get caught. I mean, the depressing thing, I suppose, is if you watch as many of those real-life serial killer documentaries as I've watched, you'll know... Aye, that does happen quite a lot. Well, they I get dismembered and put in black bag and stuck outside. Uh, the, the pig thing uh, is really interesting because that, especially at the time, I remember that was that cropped up in like four different films and books almost within like two or three years of each other. Some of them like was there like a real life case of that or something. But there's definitely like two or three films, and then it crops up in the uh, the Thomas Harris Hannibal novel. That's one yes. of the, the, the big things there, and then it made, that made its way into the movies as well. But yeah, pigs were obviously in vogue in the late, you know, the late nineties, uh, early two thousands. Um, yeah, it, it's it's bleak, isn't it? It's bleak, but also played for laughs, which again is something this film does really well. There's a lot of really grim and awful things, but it almost just rebounds from it because of the way the characters react to the farce and the, the, and the nature of it. Um, there's only one or two moments which we'll get to. Well, you've mentioned one already, um, where reality creeps through and the, the, the sort of the 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 main line of the film uh-huh. like so there's the moment as you mentioned earlier where, where tommy suddenly discovers that he might be about to be murdered by these uh by these pikeys because of what's happened uh-huh. and again that's that's all down to stephen graham that's all down oh, to him God. you know like everything on his face um so even though you've got all the sort of like you've got the, the thrumming music and you've got the chaos all around him as that camera sort of pans in on him quietly contemplating his own demise it's horrifying and that's one of only two moments i think in the film where they let you dwell on the reality of what's happening the rest of it like you said as grim as the body disposal stuff is it's all played for like it's, it's all madness it's silly you mean that's where around that point's where we get brick tops monologue about the pigs you know where he just like he goes into minute detail and you know explaining exactly how much bone and flesh a pig can go through and how quick i love all that stuff but again it lessens the sort of the harsh reality of it somewhat what is the way way we're here in case i missed the point then so what's the What's the second point you'd like to bring up there of the sort of harsh reality of let's be honest, gangsters, murders? Yeah. Well, again, it's um, we've we've not come to it yet in the 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 story, but we'll jump ahead slightly. We'll jump about. Yeah, it's fine. When we get when you get to the point where um, they have to force Mickey to fight, and the way in which they do so is to burn down his oh, mum's right, caravan okay. with yeah. his mum's down the pants. Yeah, yeah. They, they do this wonderful moment where, like, again. You, you get a montage of things happening, but the camera lingers on Brad Pitt just long enough to see the wheels turning in his head. You know, you get the, you get the rage and the despair and the anguish, but also there's this weird, really creepy coldness in his eyes as well, where it's like, right, well, you know, the, this this is not going to go unanswered. It's not going to play out the way you think it's going to play out. And again, that that ties into what happens towards the end of the film. 
Yeah, that's it. So again, what characters? We're just jumping about here. I presume most of you will have seen this film, so we'll jump about. We need to meet Vinnie Jones at a point, and again, there's a on IMDb, but I have heard this in other places. Like there's a bit where he taps his gun on Vinnie and Soul's car outside. Um, that actually wasn't Vinnie Jones. Um, because he supposedly been put in jail the night before for fighting. Uh, it was just a lookalike that done that, that scene <laughs> from. But we're introduced to the the fixer basically calling Vinnie Jones. You've not seen Lockstock either. I know I keep saying that, but the way we're introduced to him when he's smashing the guy's head in the door, basically the same way you're introduced to him in Lockstock. So um it's, it's, it's not it's, it's not this it's not the same character, though. It's, it's a different. Person. No, no, it's all. It's, it's not. A, it's not the same character at all. But you're introduced to him in the exact same way, basically. Yeah, it's Vinnie Jones. Like Vinnie Jones, amazes me the career that he had for himself in films. Like how he went from being this Wimbledon footballer who was known for being a bit of a fug, really. But like his biggest claim to fame was pulling Gaza's pubes on the pitch <laughs> and making Gaza cry. Um, and then he suddenly makes a name for himself as an actor. And I, I remember this happening and thinking, this is a bit of a joke, this isn't real. But then he, he kept getting jobs and he kept getting roles. And it seems to have dried up now, to be fair. Um, but it's it was weird just how big a thing he became in films so, so quickly. And he wasn't that bad at it. Like He's never won any Oscars or anything like that. But if you want him to go and play a thug and come across as a bit of a hard man or a tough nut or whatever... He is capable of doing that, and he does it relatively well. And in this film, he's obviously a little bit larger than life and stuff like that. He's got the whole get up and stuff. But yeah, it's it's Vinnie Jones, and probably the best thing I could say about him would, would be that watching Vinnie Jones in this for the first time, within about thirty seconds, I'd forgotten about Vinnie Jones, the Wimbledon player, and I I, I was totally believing that this was just a normal character actor, and he was playing this nutcase. Um, yeah. So kudos to Vinnie Jones for making that happen. Um, but yeah, he's another important part of this story. It's another one I think this, the, the film would struggle without because he, he he does that. He just adds a little bit to the story for me having him there and some of the stuff he does. It was but, um, it was Lockstock, wasn't it? That kind of that made his name. I mean, that, that's what kind of catapulted him as as an as an actor. Um, and so. then for a few years, you're right, Colin. It felt like he was everywhere. You know what I mean? Like every sort of like mid range action blockbuster, he was like henchman number four. Mm-hmm. And and then he showed up. Showed up in one of the X Men films. You know, as a, a bull or something. Like that. Uh, Did they not uh, make no, it into the Expendables as well? Yeah, you're forgetting his iconic line in the uh, in the X Men. They give him one line right when he gets to see his name, <laughs> and it, it, he throws in a swear word as well as I'm the juggernaut bitch and it's, oh, <laughs> <sighs> means business a big man no messing um, but I, no, I think he's actually he's, he's really good in this I, I think he's really good in small doses Vinnie Jones so, you know I don't want to rely on him in a film but throw him in for a 10-15 minute segment throughout your film Aye, that's fine have you ever seen uh, there's a, a really good horror movie called The Midnight Meat Train uh, based on a Clive Barker short story, and he's like the the sort of the main villain. He's terrific in it. I, I, again, it's a role that requires him to say nothing, just kind of walk around looking menacing. He's very good at that. But like, he's got this really weird energy in that film. I highly recommend you see that. It's, it's, it's a really good film. He pops up in um, a, a TV show that I, that I quite enjoyed, Elementary, which is like the oh, American yeah. remake of the Sherlock Holmes with um, somebody from Trainspotting. What's the guy's name again? Uh, oh, Johnny, Lee, Johnny Miller. Lee Miller. Johnny Lee Miller. He's Sherlock Holmes. He turns up in that as one of the baddies, and he's he's just he's not good in it. He's he's not particularly good in that. But I think that was the way. Maybe it was the way it was written. He just doesn't. They, they try to make him too British, almost. I don't know. It's it's not not ideal. But yeah, small doses as a psychopath, then um, you can get behind that. He one was, of the um, just one just, just to just to diverge. He was also very good in Celebrity Big Brother. It has to be said. When he when he appeared in that after the films dried up a little bit, um, he went into that with Alex Reed, um, the ex kind of martial artist that was married to Jordan at one point, right, okay. and the whole idea was that they two were going to come to blows and stuff, and they didn't really. He spent more time with Dane Bowers and Cisco, if I remember correctly, from that. Um, but to have an idea of where he's at now, I think the last thing I saw um, him on was The Mask Singer. He's done that as well recently, Vinnie Jones. Did he? Um, I know yeah, Stephen Henry done it recently as well. Yeah, Charlie from Busted is the latest one that's just done it as well. But he yeah, won it, I think. 
Um, yes, I think he did. But I, uh, I don't Benny watch it, I swear to God, but I just yeah, seen him win it. Are, are there any winners in that show, really? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's, that's just, the, just the viewers, Hugh, just the viewers, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he's done a fair bit of the old celebrity stuff over the years and the reality TV stuff and all that, which kind of shows like where he's gone from a movie point of view to start doing this stuff now. Um, but he's always good value, whatever he does, so fair play to him. Yeah, DVD commentaries are good in these things um, because we're talking about the, the bookmaker scene. Lenny James actually, uh, when he shot the shotgun, actually hurt himself in the, in the dangle, the, the danglers basically, and the footage was, was kept in the film. So he does hurt himself there, and we all know what that feels like. One of the other characters in it uh, was a bit of a pest. Who, uh, the dog, basically. The dog's quite a, <laughs> well, quite an important role in this. Um I think he was called Bow um, in real life, but he was difficult to work with. He was a bit of a biter. And when he does attack people, I think, again, they kept that footage in when he was being a bit of a pest. But, but quite a key character, a dog, and everybody loves a dog. I well, I mean, I've only recently become a dog owner in the last year. It's the first time I've ever owned a dog. We got a, a puppy last year. Congrats. and. Uh, yeah, I, I'm experiencing that weird thing where it's like you absolutely love them, right? But my God, are they a pain right in the hole sometimes. <laughs> um, as we record, gents, I've got my, my 16-year-old daughters in, in the sitting room with her trying to keep her occupied because she's been running about like a fucking lunatic since I get in. So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, no, I... Uh, this, if I'm honest with you, right, this is another one of the things where like, where I have a slight issue with the film. I the, the, the side plot of the, the diamond, okay, it feels a bit too much like Guy Ritchie had an idea for two films. It's like he's this one about this diamond heist and gone wrong and all this sort of stuff, and then another one about these boxing promoters and you know getting in with the pikeys. And I think for a lot of the film, it does feel like you're watching two movies with the same characters flitting in and out that have kind of been meshed together. Um, but like, I think it worked well enough, and it kind of comes together in the end. You know, the last ten minutes kind of bring both of those plot lines on top of each other. But I think for too much of the film, they feel like two separate stories entirely. But I, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Am I being overly harsh? I think that's kind of kind of what I, I liked about it because I, I'm trying to think back when I was that age. If I had watched a film that was kind of like that with the two sort of there's the diamond story and there's the boxing story mm-hmm. and the characters crossover. I'm trying to think about it. I think it was probably the first time I'd seen anything sort of like that. And it might be clumsily stuck together, I suppose. But um, like I said, I, I kind of find it hard to take any criticism of this film because because <laughs> I love it so much. So shut your mouth. <laughs> what about you, Colin? Every film critic longs to hear. Shut your mouth. Um, I've actually been racking my mind there for the last couple of minutes trying to think of other films that have got that. Like Pulp Fiction's maybe the sort of an example of a bunch oh, of different stories going at the same time, but they're probably a little bit more closely um, closely linked than that would be. Um, it's a, the, it's really the, it's, sorry for jumping in. It's just the, the, like, the sort of twist on it. It's not linear. What's the opposite of linear? Unlinear storytelling. You know, hmm. like Especially with the... The, the car crash, because that's kind of told backwards, because you see Boris getting hit, then you see the car crash with the milk, and then you see them sitting in the car with drinking the milk. It's, it's kind of shot just strangely, and I think he's probably, I will admit, Guy Ritchie is probably trying to be a little bit too Tarantino at, at points. He's probably trying too hard as a sort of look at me, look at me. Um, I, I will admit that it, with a, the hyper stylization and the uh, the sort of weird way it's shot, I will. I'll hold my hands up. <laughs> the, kind of, the two kind of different rotating stories doesn't bother me per se because they're both done well. And you're with a film like this, if you were just going to concentrate on one side of it, either just the boxing or just the heist, so to speak, you're probably going to struggle to get a quality 90 minutes out of mm. that story, probably. Whereas you're, there's probably a good 45 minutes or an hour in both those stories each. So to, combining them together using the same characters and then bringing it all together is, is good directing for me. So I don't have an issue with it. It's quite a clever way of doing it. And it gets it, it makes the film better, all the better for it than just having one all right storyline, having two good ones that you don't have to put extra necessary scenes and dialogue in for. So in that regard, I think it's quite well done and it works. Uh-huh. I think I think what you said there, Jack, is quite interesting about um, trying to be too much, sort of too Tarantino. I, I, I get what, you, what you're saying there. 
but you know what? I'd rather he takes a swing like that and does something completely unusual and different. And you know, get, get, that's what, that's what gives this film its flavour. Without those big swings, without those of um, as you as you put it, those non-linear moments where the where the foot the film is told slightly out of sequence, um, it is just a sort of like another Cockney gangster flick, you know. But it's his visual flair, I think, and his his ear for dialogue that adds a lot to it. And that's kind of what stood out. Well, that's what early Tarantino was, you know. I mean, that's what made his films stand out. It was his ear for dialogue and his flair for film uh, for uh, filmmaking. You know, he'd take the best of things that he'd seen in sort of films of the sixties and seventies and incorporate them into a sort of modern setting. And I think Guy Ritchie has kind of taken what Tarantino's done and done a slightly sort of bastardized version of it, where it doesn't quite work as well, but it, it's so visually entertaining as opposed to a lot of stuff you would have got, especially around the turn of the century, especially around 2000. I mean, a lot of those action films, if you go back and visit them now, they're a bit bland and they're so sort of like, uh, so so straightforward. That's probably the best way of putting it. You know, it's like they're fine. They get from point A to B. They're good enough. But it was nice to have a director come along. And I remember this at the time. It was was nice to have a director coming along trying something different, even if it didn't always gel with me and my sensibilities and what I like in a film. I can respect the fact that he's taking a swing and he's doing something different. And it's and those are things that he kind of tempered throughout his career. And I think he's in a really good place now as a director where he's kind of, I think he's he's learned from going through the studio system, you know, how to kind of make something that is a little bit more palatable to a wider audience, I think. Hmm. But he still retains enough of that flair and that visual style and visual storytelling that still sets out his, like, you, if you sit down to watch a Guy Ritchie movie, even now generally with the exception of Aladdin that we mentioned earlier, you know you're watching a Guy Ritchie movie, you know? Yeah. I would, like, I, I'll admit, I'm a wee bit lost as to where we are, but like you're talking about Brad Pitt and his pants crying, you know, that that's really quite sad. The the van, vandalisation of um, Turkish's gambling establishment, again, a little bit of serendipity that Tommy's actually went and, lucky he's went and bought that gun from Boris because she comes in mm. and saves, basically saves his pal's, his pal's life. So those, the relationship between Turkish and Tommy take a wee dive into that, Colin. It's quite... Is sweet the right word? Or brotherly? Is it more brotherly? There's something... There's a spark between them anyway, I think. And it's quite... Yeah, nice. there, yeah there definitely is. It's not just... The, these. You, you get the idea that these two guys are kind of... They, they would go all out for each other. Right. It's not like, right, we've just got a job to do and that's it. There's, there is affection there. They care for each other. Um, This is very young Stephen Graham. And... He's still very, very good. Um, there's an interesting story about how he got cast in this, actually, as well. He, he, at the time this was filmed, really hadn't done much at all. Cameos in things, if anything, like extras work and stuff like that. And um, he accompanied one of his pals to the auditions. And he was waiting outside while he auditioned. Um, his pal finished. The casting door opened and they said to him, are you next? And he went, no, no, not me. And apparently just those words were enough that the guy said, well, I'd kind of quite like to hear you, actually. And it brought him in and he got the role. Um, which is the most Stephen Graham story ever, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's kind of his whole career. Um, and he's a guy that's just went on to do anything like Stephen it's Graham brilliant. I'd literally think yeah. could play any character. You you could you could play anybody and it would work. Um but yeah, these these two who you probably wouldn't associate Jason Stratham and him with that kind of I don't know, that kind of buddy relationship that you get now or Guys see each other and give each other a hug and stuff like that. Probably not what you think, but with those two, probably would be. They probably would be like that. Pair of Spice Boys. Um. So yeah, I liked this relationship. I thought they were pretty cool together. Yeah, the relationship was nice. I thought, like, so you like you don't get that feeling about Brick Tops two guys that they're pally. No, you know, no. they're, they're a pair of assholes. Yeah, they're hired goons. Mikey's knocking people out left, right, and centre. That's how this sort of like he knocks out. Three different people, so he knocks out Gordon George, and then the first fight he's meant to throw, he knocks the guy out with one punch, and then the last fight, uh, he nearly knocks the guy out in the first round, and then ends up going sort of. I think it gets to the fourth round where he's meant to get knocked out. The the way that's a shot, like from what I heard, they, they couldn't afford enough extras, so every time they went to a different side of the ring, they had to just move the extras basically <laughs> around and to make it look busy. I thought this was quite raw, this fight, actually. like It, it kind of seemed like it... You know when you see some fights in films? Again, maybe this is just because I enjoy it. So you see some fights in films and it's very much left, right, up, down. I thought that this was quite 
you could see this being a bit of a fight, you know, there's blood, sweat and tears, basically. What did you think of this sort of penultimate scene almost before the sort of the, the payoff after it and we find out that Mikey's actually been betting on himself the whole time and things like that? That's so good. It is, it's a ter- it's a terrific sort of way to to end the movie and kind of move us towards the end scene. That the fight is it's so sort of like visceral, you know. I was going to say gritty, but I don't know if I mean that because it again it doesn't feel. I don't I don't think it feels like a real fight because it's so violent, you know. It's like right, one or I... two of those blows, I think, would kill someone, you know, the way they're hitting each other. But but again. If you accept the rules of the world that you're that this film is clearly set in, you know you, by this point you're you're well into it. You, you're you've well bought into, into it. yeah. You've bought into to the story that this film's telling. So yeah, the, the fights are great. Um, Brad Pitt looks horrendous by the, by the, way, the thing we get to the third round, fourth round, and uh, there's that really. This is the thing about Snatch I actually remember clearest is that amazing shot of oh, uh, floating Brad Pitt, yeah, getting knocked yeah. on his ass and he's kind of floating backwards, arcing through the air, and when he hits the canvas. You know, it turns to water, and suddenly, you know, you see the camera falls him underwater. I, again, that that's a, a such a brilliant moment, and it's it's what I was going back to. Going back to what I was saying earlier, it's an example of of a director making a choice that changes the way in which you view the film. You know, so that could just be a by-the-numbers boxing match, but to take that kind of artistic swing in the final moments, he's uh-huh. doing something different and something that you take away from the film that you remember for a long time. And again, it, it buys into that notion of, like, you know, the minute Mickey hits the canvas, what he's actually doing is it's refreshing him, and it's like, right, you know, the water's consuming him, waking him back up, and, you know, what does he do? He gets right back up and <laughs> really kills the, the lad. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's absolutely terrific, that moment. So that they they walk out of there, and obviously Turkish and Tommy call, and they don't have a clue what's going on. And there's a, like a gunshot, and there's the freeze frame. I like the way they've used that because Tommy and Turkish look mortified, mm. and even though Brad Pitt has lost his mum and he's just been in a fight, has got this sort of smirk in his face because all along he's been planning to get his own back and and murder uh, all the baddies basically. So I'm really enjoying this film. There is a wee sort of it's sort of the way the way. It, sort of ends basically with uh, Turkish and Tommy getting the, what do you call it, the diamond and things like that. It's a nice way to package it, but basically that's the end of the film as we learn that Mickey's been better than himself. Did you see... It's always very difficult to watch the film again and then try to think if you've seen anything like that coming, but yeah. I remember first time seeing it thinking, oh, what a twist. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see it coming at all. Um, just because I wasn't sitting waiting for a twist, it I, didn't strike me as if it was going to have a twist, so I wasn't looking for it or anything. Um, but they did a really good job of making the characters that you wanted to have a happy ending, so to speak, get that happy ending. It's that old kind of, it's the old sort of wrestling angle, isn't it? Send the punters home happy. And that's what it did. It, it, you, you finished that film and it was a good film, but... If all the bastards had walked away at the end, rich and all the good guys dead, oh, fucking hell, man. But they didn't do that. All the guys you liked, the guys that were good to watch and had a good heart and all that sort of stuff, ended up coming through it and doing okay out of it. None more so than uh, old Mickey after his boxing betting winning. <laughs> so it was really well done. And it did. It, let, it, it, it just meant the film ended in a happy way for me. Do you know during the, the boxing scene, it's Oasis that's playing? Did you know that? But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's like, it must be like... There must be like an album track or something, um, because I don't. I'm not a massive Oasis fan, but um, yeah, I think it, I think it's from the Standing on the Shoulder of Giants um, album. I think it's like the first track on that. I, I again, I was a massive Oasis fan back in the day. Uh, I, I just again, they're just the right, the right sort of choice of music. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that song's called "Fucking in the Bushes." Yep. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I say that, Colin, but yep, called. absolutely. I'll say it's fine. <laughs> I won't. I won't call them pikeys, but I'll say "fucking in the bushes." No problem. <laughs> so we've we've covered about the soundtrack stuff. Like what about the way right before we sort of do our our, our final sort of? Um, I don't know if we'll give it a score or whatever. I don't know if people want to hear me say it's a ten out of ten film, and people disagreeing with me, but. The, the way it's shot again, a very specific choice from Guy Ritchie. Do you think? Too? The way, the, the just the way the lighting, everything about it, it's very, it's, it's very own style, basically from start mm. to finish. It's it's the thing that that that's, that set 
those early films apart. It's it's the thing that got attention on him. It's the thing that um, it's that's the reason why Brad Pitt wants to work with with Guy Ritchie because there's a, it's a filmmaker doing something visually unique and different. Um, and can he kind of announced himself on the scene with with that first film with Lockstock as this sort of this new voice and this new you know, in British cinema. And I, I remember it at the time it was exciting watching that that film for the first time because it was so different. And then when you got to Snatch, it was nice to see that he'd taken what he'd learned in that first film and the studio had given him the you know, bigger budget and trusted him to do pretty much what he wanted. And I think that's that's what you get with this film. That I mean, oh God, I'm loath to use the phrase auteur filmmaker, right? But that is kind of what he was early on. You know, you, you look at somebody like, and, and I say this, I, I, I despise this man's films, right? Like Zack Snyder, right? I'm not a Zack Snyder fan in the slightest. But you can't say that you don't know you're watching a Zack Snyder movie when you've got one on. It's a guy with a singular vision, right? And I think early Guy Ritchie is very much in that vein. It's like you, you can't be mistaken of, the, of whose film it is you're watching because it's stamped all over. It's in the DNA of the film from the way it's shot, from the, the choices that he makes, from the artistic style that he's using, from the, to the soundtrack, to the dialogue. I, I think he creates this world for you that um, it's always fun to revisit. And that's why I loved The Gentleman so much because it was like, I remember watch, within 10 minutes of watching that film, it's just like, oh yeah, we're back. You know, this is, this is what I want from Guy Ritchie. <laughs> and by all means, he can go off and do his more artistic films, or he can do his more lucrative movies for Disney. But you know, give me a give me a fun gangster flick with like Cockney geezers saying ridiculous things, and I'll be I'll be a happy bunny. I was going to say try and follow that, Colin, but I think you basically summed it up pretty perfectly, mate. Anything to add to <laughs> yeah. that? No, Hughes brought us to a, a great crescendo. I think with that. Um, listen, I enjoyed this film far more than I had any right to do so. Um, I, I, you know me, Jack. I would love to look down on this film and go, "Not for me," but it very much was, and it's I enjoyed fun, it. Man. It was fun, and um, like I said, I watched it for the first time a number of years ago. Watched it again last weekend. I probably won't watch it again now for a couple of years, but I, I will watch it again at some point, and I'll very much enjoy it. And I think I said this to you the first time I watched it. I'm going to go and watch Lockstock now, and I didn't. You need, you need to do it. We obviously, I will. Now go and watch Locks. We're, we're, we're recording on uh, Tuesday night just before the Scotland-Spain game. So I might sack off Scotland and go and watch Lockstock. <laughs> quick, pre- quick prediction for the Scotland game while we're here. I think we'll oh, God. Uh, just... It, it'll be close, but I think we'll just get beat 2-0. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we'll lose and nobody will be surprised. I'm, I'm going to go for 3-1. Let's go 3-1 Spain. Yeah, didn't think you'd get a football prediction at the end of this movie review, <laughs> but that's where we find ourselves because it does kick off in 15 minutes. And by the time this goes out, it's going to be out of date. But I thoroughly enjoyed speaking about one of my favourite films. So, Hugh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time out because, you know, like I've been asked to do film reviews before and if, I, if I'm not particularly keen on the film, I see it as an absolute chore having to watch it. <laughs> um, and I have actually... <laughs> There's been movie reviews that we've done on our other show, Colin, but I've just not watched the film. I've just went, I'm not, I'm not going to watch it <laughs> and just pass the box. So thanks for taking your time out there and taking the time out tonight to come on and speak to us. Not any time, guys. Honestly, I, I always love, uh, I love talking about films with with, uh, with anybody. And it's it, given the, the nature of the podcasts that I, that I co-host, it's like, it tends to be either superhero, guff or vampire movies, you know. And believe me, when I say I can appreciate your feelings, I have watched so many shite vampire films that you know that you just have to get through, have to do it, have to watch them, have to take my notes. Um, this this was a lot of fun. I uh, really really enjoyed it. Right, Hugh, where can where can where can folk find your stuff if they like listening to you today? Oh yeah, um, so. So the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Um, I'm over at AngryScotsman81. Uh, well, while Twitter still exists, who knows what's going to happen there. Um, and you can find that. I co-host two podcasts. I co-host the Podcast 616, which is a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. Uh, and I also co-host Vampire Videos, uh, which was just, just about to finish its third season, which I can't quite believe how quick that's gone. Um, so, yeah, you can find us there. Um, I also I do a lot of writing. You can find my stuff on the London Horror Society. That's where I do most of my reviews, but a few other places online. And uh, on it, there's, I've got a link tree on my on my Twitter as well with all the sort of short stories and stuff I've sold over the last few years. So if you don't want to read any of them, please dig in, dig in. I'll put that link tree. If you send me, I suppose I could go and get it. 
pretty easily. But if you just DM me that, I'll stick it in. I'll stick it in the show notes as well, so you can Thank just you. find Q stuff by clicking below. I'd imagine if you're listening to this, but uh, really enjoyed this, and I'm sure in a couple of months' time or whatever, Q will get you back on. And do you know what? Maybe you could maybe pick a film, um, some, oh, and, no. and then I will. <laughs> then I'll not watch it. So, <laughs> well, maybe maybe not. We'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah. As always, guys. Yeah, this is only one part. So our Patreon listeners, um, you're going to get a wee bonus show uh, this Friday coming up. And uh, if you like what we do, <laughs> squeezing this, crowbarring this right in at the end, Colin, <laughs> please share this episode. Uh, st- click that share button. Yeah, absolutely, guys. You know that uh, me and Jack don't don't just do this for the love of the love of everything. We do it for the money, and uh, <laughs> we do it to go and buy giant skittles. Unfortunately, we're going to have to share some of our giant skittles this week because Hugh refused to come on unless we paid them. Um, <laughs> Extensive amounts of money. Extensive. Um, but yeah, if you enjoyed the show, just do the usual. Um, share it with um, MD you think might like it as well, be it through your podcast app, view word of mouth. Do something to share it. Um, if you care, give us a share. Right, guys. Sweet to you soon. Ta-da. Bye. <laughs>